I was reading through the week about creative but bizarre solutions that people have come up with to problems that they've been facing. In the city of Bulawayo in Zimbabwe, they had huge problems with their sewer pipes that were completely inadequate, out of date, poorly designed and constantly clogged. So the solution that the mayor came up with in 2012 was that he ordered all the residents of the city to flush their toilets simultaneously for an hour at a time, twice a week, the big flush, uh, and that would clear the pipes. And uh, uh, and while it didn't deal with the real problem and it wasn't sustainable and it created plenty of other problems, it kind of worked. And, and they actually got flowing sewerage for a little while each week. In 1980, when the Apple III computer was released, uh, it had a heating problem which caused the computer chips on the motherboard to expand and pop out of their sockets. They'd become dislodged. Uh, Steve Jobs realised that, uh, that there was a problem, but he refused to add vents to the computer um, because it'd be too noisy and because, you know, Apple style and he just wanted it to look good. And so Apple wrote in the manual that uh, came with the computer that if you experience problems, you should lift your computer up three inches and drop it on the desk in order to reset the chips on the logic board. Uh, good for resetting the chips, not so good for the longevity of the machine. <laughs> you drop that a few times and see what happens. In both cases, the solutions they came up with were creative, for sure, and they, they had a certain logic to them. But they really were just band-aid solutions. Right? They didn't deal with the underlying issues. They didn't deal with the real problems, the, the root cause. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that we humans have an enormous problem that trumps all the other problems that we may face. It's a bigger problem than climate change. It's bigger than racism. It's bigger than the gender and sexuality wars that we're in. It's bigger even than COVID-19 as devastating to our community and to our world as it has been. Bigger than all of them because it lies behind them and it impacts them and, and this problem just will not go away, even if we would all work together and play a part. The problem is the sin problem. The fact that as a race of people, we have all turned our backs on our creator and sought to take his rightful place in our lives. We reject God's rule and we want to rule ourselves. And, and there's at least two devastating consequences to that when we, when we want to be gods ourselves. The first is that we end up turning on each other. And no wonder, because if I want to be God and you want to be God, who's going to be God when we meet? And so we clash, we fight. That's why we bicker and argue. You see it in little kids. Uh, they say, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And the solution is to bash the other kid over the head with the toy. Uh, we adults do exactly the same thing, but we do it in a much more clever and sophisticated way. We manipulate and we lie, we slander and bribe to get our way. It's just exactly the same issue. It's wanting to be our own God, be the most important thing for the world to centre around us. And it lies behind all the hatred that's out there, all of the wars, all of the greed, all of the vandalism, all of the disputes that we have over our backyard fences. It lies behind all family violence, 
It lies behind all family breakdown. And we saw the truth of that two weeks ago when Philip Jensen came and showed us the devastating effect of our sin, the reality of it and the devastating effect on our own lives and on our society. If you missed it, it really would be worth going back and watching on our website or on our YouTube channel or maybe through our Facebook page. But there's an even more devastating consequence of this rebellion that we looked at last week. The fact that we have to face God. We have to give him an account of our lives. And what do you think God's going to say to those people, to us, who have he made to love and to glorify him, who, who have been made and given and the recipients of all of his care and all of his affection and provision, but who've turned our backs on him and taken his place and told him just to rack off. We don't want to, we're not that interested. It's not going to go well. And so we're facing not just our death, but judgment as well afterwards. It's a pretty stark reality that we face. It's a huge problem because we're facing hell. But if that's the problem, what's the solution? Is there an answer? Can there be an answer? If at heart we want to be little gods and run life our own way and if it results in such disaster in our society and in our lives and in the world, um, is there a solution? One that really deals with the problem, the real problem, one that not only deals with the consequences of human sin but can actually do with the root issue as well. One that's not just a band-aid solution like the big flush or drop your computer from three inches up in the air and hope for the best. Well, all kinds of people have tried to suggest that they do have the answer. Here's some of what people suggest. Here's the human proposals to the solution for the problem of human sin. Well, some people want to suggest that the solution is to deny that there's a problem in the first place and, and just lean into selfishness, that it's a good and right thing and redefine you know, morality. The atheists say that there are no, there's no intrinsic right or wrong. There's no good or evil. The fact that you have an instinct for playing fair or for being nice at all, well, that, that's just a collective myth that's been bred into us to improve our chances in a dog-eat-dog world. Those who cooperate uh, live longer and they'll breed better. So it's not that there is a right and wrong. It's just it, there's a better fit. It's really just a question of survival of the fittest. Now, where does that end up? Well, it ends up in Hitler's final solution. Well, we want the best and strongest me- members of the su- species to survive, and so we've just got to purge the dross. Then our race will be better. We will be perfect. Really? That's not solving the problem. It's embracing it. Some suggest that the solution to human evil and sin is, is education. If we can just get the kids at a young enough age and teach them not to be mean and to be nice and, and how things really work and everything will just work out. Just educate the masses and have free education of sufficiently high quality and we'll rid the world of all of its problems. Class distinction will disappear. Poverty will be a thing of the past if we could just be better informed. And yet has the introduction of free education in Australia helped us make more moral and more peaceful uh, community? Uh, are the kids today better behaved than they were back when? Uh, are adults 
better behaved now than they were back, you know, a hundred years ago? Are, are people more adjusted? Are people coping better with life? Are they dealing with each other in a more friendly, loving, kind way? I'm not knocking free education. I, I love it. I'm not knocking education itself, but the problem of evil is not just for a lack of teaching, a lack of information. There's something much more profound that's going on. Uh, and so education, it's a good solution, but it's a band-aid solution. It's a big flush. It's dropped the computer. It's a good band-aid, but it's a band-aid nonetheless. Well, some say that the answer is uh, medicine. Here's an article from Psychology Today a couple of years ago. Uh, it's entitled, The Moral Molecule, Are Humans Good or Evil? Let me read it. All of us recognise virtue or vice when we see it, with virtues generally being actions that benefit others and vices entailing selfish acts. For the last 10 years, my lab has been searching for a neurochemical basis for virtue and for vice. You know, it's the chemical reactions in our brain. Here's what he's come to the conclusion. We have shown that virtuous behaviours are caused by the brain's release of the neurotransmitter and hormone oxytocin. When oxytocin is high, costly caring and helping behaviours follow. When we inhibit oxytocin release, for example, in experiments where I've administered testosterone to volunteers, virtue wanes and selfishness dominates. Oxytocin release makes us feel empathy and by doing so increases our sensitivity to the feelings of those around us. What's it saying? It's saying that sin really is a medicinal problem, a medical problem. What he's saying is give us the right drugs and we'll all be loving, moral and kind. Now actually that's the, the premise behind the amazing sci-fi movie Serenity. It's a great movie if you've never seen it. Uh, they get to the planet Miranda, way out in space that's been lost and taken off the maps and, and turns out it's deserted. Worse than being deserted, they look around and they find that everyone's dead. There are just bodies everywhere. And it turns out to be because of an airborne drug that the authorities put into the air to make people nicer. And in 90% of the population, it worked really well. In fact, it works too well. And they just stopped arguing. They stopped doing anything. They stopped going to work. They just sat down and stopped eating and stopped drinking and stopped partying because they, they just, and they just died. But in the other 10% of the population, the drug had the opposite effect. It sent them over the edge and they became psychotic killers. Uh, and the main character, after he discovers the truth of what has happened, he finds a recording of the scientists who says they administered the drug to the atmosphere. He says, we have to speak out. We have to tell the universe what went on here because a year from now, 10, they'll swing back to the belief that they can make people better. And I do not hold to that. They tried to, guess what? Stop sin. And in case you just think that's Hollywood going gaga and yet it'll never happen, in the Soviet Union, political dissidents were imprisoned and forcibly drugged with neuroleptics like Thorazine to alter their minds. In the USA in the 70s, prisoners were experimented on with drug control to control the behaviour. Uh, the result was basically a chemical lobotomy uh, and the ethical implications to that are massive. And yet here we are in the 21st century suggesting it again. Education, medicine. For others, the solution is power, more government, more police, more control. 
But we know that corruption seems to always find its way up the tree. And so we need police to watch the police. And, and who's watching the watchers? Who, who's watching over the lawmakers? They're not all that pure and innocent, are they? Just read the news recently about the scandals. And, and, and I'm not just picking on the liberals, you know, and their, you know, their politicians and staff. Anyone remember Bill Shorten? Uh, Bob Hawke with his affair? You know, it's, it, it's both sides of politics because it's everyone. If you really thought someone should have ultimate power to protect us, who would you give that power to? Who would you trust with it? Who are you going to trust with complete oversight of the whole process? Who is so noble and so wise that they could do it? The problem is that the system of government, police, whatever, is made up of people too. There's something deeper that's troubling about human nature that, that we have this problem and it's going to persist. That, that it's a problem that's inherent to us. It's not just chemical. It's not just ignorance. It's not just a matter of having too much time and freedom on our hands and so we need more control. Now, now please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have government and that we should get rid of the police. They're good. They're fantastic. They're important. I, I love that we have a police force in this country who are there to help in general. Uh, have you heard about what's happening in Portland, Oregon over the last year and still continuing? It doesn't matter which party is in power. There are riots almost every night. There are graffitis on the walls down in the street saying, kill a cop for fun. Right? It's anarchy. They're, they're burning down businesses, big and small, like the Apple store went and all the local grocers. It, it's complete anarchy. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have medicine and, and don't have education. I love our hospitals. I love our schools and I'm so glad that we have them. I'm just showing that they're never going to cut the mustard in solving the underlying issue, the real cause, the, the root of the problem, human sin and the pain, the death and the judgment that come as consequences to it. They might have... Uh, be effective in, in a limited way, in a temporary way. So some of the time, for some of the people, you know, for some while, like dropping your Apple III computer from three inches, uh, you know, the computers will drop back into place sometimes and it will look like it's working, but, you know, or, or getting everyone to flush simultaneously their lose for an hour twice a week, but it's not addressing the real problem. It's sort of effective. Right, until the whole thing breaks, right? There's an underlying fault. There's a, the things broke, we're broken. The root cause that needs fixing is our broken relationship with our maker. And none of those things can fix that. Well, what about religion then? Surely the religions of the world, they at least acknowledge there's God and they, they say there's a problem and they, they say that you can do something about the problem. What, what's religion's solution to this fundamental problem? Well, it depends on the religion, really. Uh, Hinduism says, well, live karma-free. Uh, do your best and hopefully you'll move higher up the food chain in your next life. 
And so there's this endless repetition of lives lived as you reincarnate into a different form. And if you are not, if you have bad karma, you go down. If you had good karma, you, you go up until you finally hopefully become a cow and then you can get out of this life, which is why cows are so valued above human life. Um, you, you reach the perfect state and then you escape. Islam says, well, do the five pillars and hope for the best. Pray five times a day facing towards Mecca. Fast during the month of Ramadan. Do the ritual washings every day of your face and hands for worship. Go on a pilgrimage once in your life to Mecca and give away 2.5% of your income to charity. And then Allah might have you. He might accept you. Right? But you'll never be sure. The New Age says, well, you're God. You know, you, because the universe is God and the solution is just to embrace it and become one with it and, and accept that you, accept that you are divine by doing techniques such as astral protection or meditation or Reiki or yoga to align your chakras and, and make you part of the universal consciousness. And as you do that, you will realize your divinity. You will be God. Not much a solution to sin, is it? Uh, again, that's leaning into it. It's almost like the atheist solution. Just lean into the problem by denying reality. Embrace it. Notice, though, what all those religious views have in common. They all say that you've got to do something, that you've got to make yourself better. You've got to uh, improve and you do that by following rituals and rules, you, by doing techniques and mantras, by fasting and feasting. It's all do, 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 do. And I'll tell you, you will never be able to do enough. You cannot earn your way back. You will never impress God enough by bowing and scraping and chanting and meditation. Right? The The, the pirate... Uh, who's a really good pirate who loves the ship and you know, gets involved with the crew and mops the deck, they're still a pirate and they're still going to come under judgment. When the real problem is your heart and your rebellion and the judgment, what you need is for God to provide the solution. It's a God-sized problem that we have. We need the old sewers dug up and replaced we need a new motherboard and air vents and only God's going to be able to do that. We need to be forgiven. We need to be remade. And the wonderful news of the Bible is that God has done something to make that happen. He has provided a solution, the solution, which deals with the root cause of the problem, which deals with our sin, which deals with the judgment that we're facing and takes it all away so that we can be right with him and we can be assured of our future with him. So what's God's solution? Well, I want to show you from one very short verse from the Bible, which sums up what the whole Bible's saying about God's solution. It's the sentence that is at the top of the outline, if you've got that printed out. It's from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and you could look it up in your Bible at home or on your Bible app. So there, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. 
Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. It's talking about Jesus. He's the Christ. That, that Christ is a title from the Old Testament part of the Bible uh, that uh, the Old Testament talked about a saviour that God would send one day. He promised to send. And, and in particular, it's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. That's, that's what Christ's suffering is all about. Where, where Jesus Christ was betrayed by one of his followers. He was arrested. He was put on trial. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He was tortured. And then he was nailed to a Roman cross to die, an agonizing death that took, you know, most of the day to do. And you think, how, how could that possibly be God's solution? How, how does that solve anything? Surely that's just a horrible thing to have happened to, well, someone, even someone very impressive. Well, first of all, it's God's solution because of who Jesus is. See, Jesus is God become man. The saviour God was going to send, the Christ, turned out to be his own son. You might remember from Christmas stories that, that Jesus would be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And, and you can know that he really was God with us from his biographies, the, the miracles, the, the power of his teaching, the control over the, of creation, the, the power he wielded even over death itself, bringing people back to life. The evidence is undeniable when you look at it. When you study it, you go, this is amazing. He wasn't lying when he said he was God. He wasn't insane and needed locking up with special people caring for him in a straitjacket. We we like to think of ourselves as God, but he was God. He is God. And as such, he could have used his power at any moment to have saved himself. He could have walked away from the soldiers and the crowds and just walked through him. He'd done that on many other occasions if you read through the biographies and, and he could have walked out of court any time. He could have even come down off, off the cross if he wanted to, but he stayed there. He suffered there. He died there. Why? We'll see it in the next part of our verse. For Christ suffered for sins. That's what he was doing on the cross. He was offering himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. That's why he suffered. In the Old Testament, if, if someone became aware of their own sin, someone pointed it out to them or they'd been caught out, they, they would take uh, an animal to the priest at the temple, an unblemished animal. If they were really rich, it'd have to be a bull. If they were really poor, a dove or a pigeon. You know, if it, if, you know, the normal run-of-the-mill people, the middle class, they had to take a, a lamb, a pure, spotless lamb without fault. And they would hand the lamb or the goat or the bull or the, the pigeon, whatever it was, over to the priest. Let's call it a lamb. And what the priest would do is lay his hand, hand on the head of the animal, on the lamb, and that would symbolize the transfer of guilt from the person onto the animal. And then its throat would be cut and the blood caught and blood spattered all over the altar and all around. The animal died as your substitute. It's gory stuff when you read through the Old Testament rules and regulations about sacrifices, but it was what they had to do. And that's because blood and death is the punishment for sin in God's world. 
Now we saw that last week. The payment for sin is death. God takes sin, our rebellion, that seriously. But how's an animal really going to atone for a human life? Do you really think an animal could really deal with a person's sin and take it away that it really got transferred? No way. It's totally inadequate. But it was given by God as a pointer to what God himself would one day come and do, which he has now done in sending Jesus to the cross, dying as a substitute for us, bearing the weight of our sin, dying the death that we deserve, taking the punishment that we are owed. But the sentence goes on. For Christ suffered for sins once for all. His one sacrifice was enough for everyone, for every sin. The animals in the temple, they died only for you and well, only for this last sin. The next time you were found out or pointed out to, you had to take another one. And if it were just a normal human being, even a perfect man, at best he could die for just one other person. But because he is God become man, his death is sufficient for all. When Jesus died, God was dying for you and not just for you, he was dying for the sins of the world. It's so wonderful. It's amazing. It's the love of God. But Peter goes one further. He says, the righteous for the unrighteous. As God became man, Jesus Christ never sinned. He didn't have the heart problem that we all have. He never rebelled against his heavenly father. He was faultless. He always lived in perfect relationship with his heavenly father. He didn't deserve death. He didn't deserve that kind of death. He didn't deserve judgment, which is why he can pay for the unrighteous, that is us. If he was unrighteous himself, he'd be paying for his own sins. But as it was, the righteous son of God was paying for the unrighteous. He was paying for us who are broken, paying for us who have rebelled and walked away, paying for us who have spat in his face and deserved nothing from him except judgment. Why would he do such a thing? The answer is right at the end of the sentence and what an incredible thing it is. Joy upon joy. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That's why he did it, to bring you to God, to bring you back, to restore you, to forgive you, to pay for your sins and my sins, that we might be welcomed back into God's family as his children, forgiven of our rebellion, restored to sanity. He did it because we could not. He did it because he loves us. Christianity is not another religion of do, 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 do. It's the religion that God provides that says done. Jesus Christ has done all the work. You can come back freely. He has done everything for you. Some say that Christianity is the easiest religion in the world because all you've got to do is believe it. But it's also the hardest because you've got to be humble in order to believe. You've got to come to an end of your own efforts 
You've got to admit that you can't make it, that someone else needs to save you, that you have to receive what Jesus has done for you. You don't need to be good. You need to be loved. You don't need to pay anybody back. You need to be forgiven. You don't need to straighten out your life. You need a new life. You don't need to find your way back to God. He's been looking for you. He's come for you. You don't need to please God in order to be saved. He's already pleased with the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You don't need to die. You can live. You don't need to go to hell. You can go to heaven. It comes down to just one question, doesn't it? Do you trust him? Will you trust him? Do you believe? And if, and if you don't, who, who is more trustworthy than Jesus? Who is more selfless than Jesus? Truly, who has done anything for you in your life that rises to the magnitude of what Jesus Christ has done for you? Who loves you that much that they would die in your place? I, I give you a promise today. All of your sin can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. All of your life can be redeemed in Jesus Christ. All of your days can be transformed by Jesus Christ. All of your relationships can be restored by Jesus Christ. All of your eternity can be with Jesus Christ. None of the other solutions are going to work. They just won't. At best, they're band-aid solutions that can be helpful and manage human sin and, and, and help us a little bit. But at worst, they blind us from the real issue of our sin. No amount of education, no amount of policing or medicating or fasting or meditation or astrology or rituals are going to save you. Only Jesus can do that. He's done everything that's needed to be done in order to save you. He loves you that much. He died for you to bring you to God. Will you respond to him with love, with trust? with belief. He adores you. That, that, that's why he's brought you to watch this today. That's why he died for you. And David's going to come up and, and explain how we might do that, how we might respond to him and accept his great sacrifice for our sins. Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God.